Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with only 80.6% of people being fully vaccinated, Hamilton has one of the lowest vaccination rates in Ontario. Ontario's goal is 90%, of course, which means roughly 29,000 more need to get the shot. How do you plan on reaching those people? Well, Prime Minister Trudeau made some major changes to his cabinet yesterday. The biggest move was to appoint former Procurement Minister Anita Anand to lead Canada's military. How does she plan to rebuild the trust in the military that was rocked by sexual misconduct crises? Well, we'll talk about that. And Ontario is finally moving in the right direction, or so they say anyway. They plan to double the province's long-term care home inspections and allow them to lay charges on the spot. There's some skepticism about this. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, the co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care, will join us to talk about it. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about vaccination, and uh, as, as we've talked about on the program a couple of days ago, moving very, very close now to, to vaccinations for kids, and that's a great story. The Ontario Science Table has now released its recommendations for the rollout of vaccines for kids. Sandy Salerno has details. The Ontario Science Table has come up with four recommendations for what they think will make the rollout of vaccines in this age group best for all involved. The group believes a successful campaign would include setting up vaccination clinics in schools, where kids 5 to 11 could get their shots during the school day or after along with a strong endorsement from healthcare providers. The table is also suggesting putting reminder systems in place to ensure kids get their second shot when it's time and have a public health communication campaign going so parents are aware that vaccines are available for this age group. Health Canada has yet to approve the low-dose shot for kids, but Health Minister Christine Elliott said yesterday that Ontario will be ready to roll up vaccines as soon as they get the green light. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So we've got the children's vaccines, and, and how's that rollout going to look? Interesting question. But in the Hamilton area, we've got uh, bigger problems, and that's what dealing with the here and now right now. Roughly 29,000 more Hamiltonians need to get vaccinated to reach the minimum the minimum rate required to protect the community from COVID-19. Uh, the goal is 90%, of course, and we're not there yet. Joining us to talk about this and, of course, the, the children's vaccine, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Always a pleasure for me as well. Well, let me, if I could, doctor, do these in reverse order. I want to talk about what's happening here now with vaccine rates. Uh, it's been a concern here for, for a number of months, of course, in the Hamilton area. Uh, this particular area has, I guess, one of the lowest vaccination rates in the province of Ontario right now. Uh, and uh, the, the fact that we need 29,000 more uh, just to reach the, uh, the minimum level here for uh, the proper protection in this community is a rather daunting task. Uh, how did we get to where we are right now? When, when did the problem start to, to emerge? Well, I don't know that we can actually point to a specific time, you know, around that. When it, we look at this across the province, it, it really is quite amazing what we have done in, you know, less than a year in terms of getting uh, 800 and almost 60,000 shots into arms here in Hamilton. And of course, millions across the province. We were thinking it was going to take us for a, to take us two years to get a vaccine in the first place. And of course, we got that much quicker than we thought. Um, thanks to some, you know, good work that had been done in the foundations and some, you know, rolling uh, review that was done by the approval agency so that the approvals could be faster. Um, you know, we've got uh, we've got really good rates. We do know what we have learned is the decision for some people is very complex, and it can be complex for a few reasons. One reason is that people have lots of things going on in their lives, and certain people, you know, have more challenges that they're trying to meet in terms of keeping a roof over their head. Um, making sure that they're uh, helping to support their family members, whether it's older family members or younger family members, that they are, um, 
dealing with things like transportation barriers and all those sorts of things. And so trying to figure out how vaccine fits into that can be complex. Also, it really requires people to go through, look at their particular issues. They may have health issues. We certainly heard that from a number of people. They have health issues. They need to talk those over with a health professional. And so we've tried uh, through both our primary care partners and through our clinics themselves and pharmacists. Everybody is available to provide advice. You know, for some, it's a, it's a trust issue in terms of, you know, past experiences, either for their themselves or in their broader culture. And so their own cultural leaders are really important in this. And we've done a lot of work with our faith communities, with different uh, groups such as Refuge that uh, serve those who are newly arrived in Canada um, to increase access and make sure that people have the information they need and the languages they need and they can talk through issues and are, and are talking to somebody who's like them. So it's, it is complex, and uh, we continue to do that, continue to work on getting the vaccine out there. And if anybody's listening and wants to get vaccinated today, first or second dose, or for those that need a third dose um, because of uh, issues around immunosuppression or that sort of thing, we've got four clinics running today, one at the Beverly Community Park, one at Huntington Park Rec Centre, one at our East End Public Health Clinic, which is on Centennial, and one at uh, the David Braley Health Science Centre, through our uh, primary care partners there. So many options are available for those that want to get vaccinated. For the, those who are hesitant, uh, what, what, what more can the city do here? I mean, you've, you've, you've tried to make this as accessible as possible, I understand, Doctor, uh, but, but to assuage some of the, the, the angst that they may have about this, to say this is, this is fine. I mean, you know, we've seen some of the comments on social media and, and it just, well, we want to find out more. We want to see what the reason, you know, what, what the long-term effects are. And, uh, you know, there, there were no solid answers for the, for those questions. I mean, if, if that's what they're hanging on to right now, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that they're going to be convinced to move forward in a situation like this. You, you talked about something that I wanted you to address here because I think it, it is par- partially part of the concern here. Uh, you call it an infodemic, uh, which in other words is information or false information uh, or mythologies, I guess some people might characterize it, on social media right now about the vaccine. And, and lots of people read that stuff and it seems to influence their decision. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really important that people are are critical in terms of their um, consumption of information. And so, you know, that's one of the things we've known is quite important with this, as we talked about um, making sure you're looking at good and accurate sources of information, but also talking to people that you trust. And so oftentimes those are uh, leaders within one's own cultural community or faith group. And so we've done a lot of work with people in those communities to and increase their access to information and give them things that they think can help their uh, their communities in terms of getting good access to information. You know, we're in that age where information is not the problem. <laughs> Ultimately, it's making sure the information is of good quality. And, you know, the school started this many years ago in terms of teaching kids, how do you understand good sources of information? And you see that now out there, whether you're on Instagram or in, in Facebook, wherever it is, about make sure you're getting information from good sources, reliable sources, suggestions of what those good sources are. And so that's absolutely critical as we go through this. Some people will want to sit back and wait and see. And that is um, certainly something I've seen and people I've talked to is they just need to wait a little longer, think through it a little bit more. And I've certainly seen a lot of those people move forward. It's been long enough for them or they've thought about it long enough. And I think that's where Really, when we approach these situations, we have to be very respectful of where people are at and what they're moving through to make their decision. 
the uh, the whole judgment piece is critical um, in terms of not bringing a judgmental attitude to those conversations, but rather listening, helping to understand what their barriers might be to it or what their concerns are, being empathetic with them and helping them with the uh, the right information to help them make a decision. And again, as, as it pertains to this group, are you, are you concerned, doctor, that uh, we've had some, I think, relatively good news over the last couple of days? The numbers are down, hospitalizations are down, uh, there seems to be a flattening right now, and, and that's encouraging. Uh, the provincial government is talking about the next steps here. We're actually starting to move into that right now. We're seeing, you know, capacity crowds in, in, in movie theaters and in, in stadiums and things of this nature. Uh, is that sending a, a subliminal message here that the worst is over? You don't need to get vaccinated. Is that how some people might actually uh, take what's going on here and say, "Well, they don't not, they don't need me now. It's 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 almost over." Yeah, that's always one of the concerns. Whenever we're at this stage, when we're dealing with any disease, we see this where you know some people sit back and say, "Oh, it's okay now. I can wait and see," or it's it's not really that critical. And I think what we're we've absolutely seen as we've gone through this is we need that combination of public health measures and vaccination. And so vaccination remains an absolutely key part of this. And for every individual, their risk of getting significantly ill, ending up in hospital, ICU and death is greatly reduced by taking that vaccine. Um, in terms of um, you know moving forward with public health measures, as we lift those a little bit and try and get a little bit more contact, a little bit more of the things we all need from a social and mental health perspective, those are um, that, that vaccine is going to become even more important, and it's going to be critical um, to maintain some level of public health measures as we go through this and get those continue to get those vaccination rates up. So it's going to be slow and steady. We're going to watch and see how it goes. But we certainly, you know, anytime we're opening up a little bit more, we run more risks of running into the virus, of um, getting infected, and we're only well protected against that with the vaccine. I, I think some people have to make a, a choice here, and they have to understand that some of these things that are being announced, some of these policies are politically driven as opposed to uh, driven by public health. I mean, I mean, I, I just saw yesterday in the news that Saskatchewan's thinking about eliminating masking again. I mean, they're, they're, they can't, they have, their numbers are out of control right now, yet they're still talking about, well, you, in, in a couple of weeks, you probably aren't going to need masks anymore. I mean, it's, it's a it's a ridiculous idea, but that's that's the government and that's what they're doing. I mean, think people have to understand what's happened in the past. And, you know, we've learned from the, the, the four waves that we've already gone through here that when we let our guard down, there's usually a spike and the cold weather's coming up. And that's a, a rather toxic mix, isn't it, when you have cold weather and people that think, well, the worst is over. That's right. Cold weather, people coming indoors in closer contact, those are going to be challenges for us when it comes to keeping transmission levels low. And you've seen a really good um, go-slow approach in Ontario in terms of reopening, getting and getting vaccination rates up, but slow and steady. And we need to continue to do that. So the plan that was outlined, it's a reasonable plan for moving forward. But you know it's, it's accompanied by all those metrics and continuing to check in, see what's happening, and continuing to make the best decision with the information that we have at hand um, at the time. And so, you know, quicker, just let's open back up. Uh, methods aren't working that well. I got a couple of minutes left here. I want to talk about the the, the children's vaccine and, and uh, the great work that's being done by Pfizer and others right now. And they've applied now for, uh, I guess, uh, Health Canada regulations. And of course, the down in the states, they're doing the same situation there with the, uh, their uh, okaying agencies. There's to give it a thumbs up on this. Uh, I, I don't 
want to try to nail you down is to say, hey, when's this going to be available? We're hoping it's going to be before the end of the year. Maybe, maybe not, but it's imminent anyway, and that's good news. How do you see a rollout program like this? Uh, it's it's got to be voluntary again, once again. And, uh, and is, is it going to fall in? Well, if your parents were vaccinated, you'll probably allow the kids to be. Or, or how do we address this to try to encourage the parents to have their children vaccinated for this as well? You know, I think the same principles apply when we're talking about uh, vaccinating children as, as talking about uh, vaccinating anyone. Of course, you know, with our kids, we know people are very sensitive in terms of wanting to make sure that the vaccine is safe, that it's effective, that it's a that it is worthwhile taking for their children. And so information will continue to be an absolutely key part of this. And you heard the science table of peace about a public communication campaign, and that's certainly going to be part of what we do. There's, our school boards are helping us as well. They've been a big help through the 12 to 17 campaign in terms of a great way to get information out to parents. Um, our, uh, our clinics will get up and running. We're working with um, the group of people through McMaster Children's Hospital, Primary Care, um, we know the pharmacists will have a role to play as well, and we're looking at uh, at how exactly we can make it most successful. I know the science table has talked about vaccine clinics in school during the day. The challenge there is then you need to have a course for this age group, their parents there, and a number of others. And so while we're trying to continue to ensure our children are kept safe and are going through their school day, we're just working through exactly where citing those clinics makes sense here in Hamilton. But Bill, I did want to talk about something that's a huge focus this week as well, which is about pregnant women. So talking about people who are currently pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant. And this is a group that's really important to get vaccinated. We sit with about 59% as of the beginning of October of currently pregnant women are vaccinated. They're about five times higher risk for ending up hospitalized and about 10 times higher risk um, for getting ending up in the ICU if they are pregnant and haven't been vaccinated against COVID-19. And so I know, again, that's a time period where people are really sensitive. They want to make sure they're doing the best for their growing child. And, and uh, uh, we know that this vaccine is safe in pregnancy. We haven't seen any um, challenges in terms of impacts. We haven't seen any challenges in terms of fertility as well for people who are thinking about getting pregnant. I know that's been one of the things that's been out there on the internet. It doesn't have any scientific basis and we've not seen it in the millions and millions and millions of doses that have been um, administered now worldwide. And so it's really important that pregnant women talk to their caregivers. We're uh, distributing those resources. Every um, uh, clinic is doing what we call a minimal contact intervention, which means that they're having a chat every time the person comes in just to say, are you vaccinated? You know, what are the barriers for you? That critical conversation we talked about off the top about, you know, what information do you need? How could we make it easier for you? And as much as possible, having that vaccine on hand in those clinics so that people can get vaccinated when they're there. So very and, and as as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I mean, there is a body of evidence now because it's been a while since the vaccination program uh, has rolled out. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, there there is no scientific evidence to some of those uh, rumors that were uh, surfacing about uh, pregnancies and things of this nature. And, and the number, as you mentioned, only 59% of all women reporting pregnancies uh, were fully vaccinated. So, And that's a number that needs to, to be addressed as well. Uh, so much more on this, but our time is tight. Uh, doctor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program today. Uh, lots more to come, of course, with the, the children's vaccine rollout and I'm sure we'll talk again down the road, but I do thank you for your time today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, 
news cycle, I guess, was consumed by the announcement yesterday of uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's new cabinet. Uh, and some surprises. Uh, Mark Garneau not even being included in the cabinet, I think, raised an awful lot of eyebrows. But some portfolios, uh, of course, uh, have switched uh, because of uh, what a lot of people think was underperformance by the ministers in charge of something like that. There's been reaction from opposition parties. Uh, they all hate it, by the way. There's no surprise there. That's what opposition parties do. Uh, but some concern about a couple of different ministries, uh, and one, of course, being environment. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But also a defense ministry. Uh, Harjit Sajjan is out. And, uh, well, the fight against sexual misconduct of the Canadian Armed Forces has entered a new era now as former procurement minister Anita Anand has become only the second woman to hold office as Canada's defense minister. But following her swearing in, uh, the newly minted minister Anand told reporters she has a game plan already, and it starts with a full review. I'm going to be reading the past reports regarding misconduct in the armed forces as well as the recent independent review of the military justice system. I will be asking the department for an analysis of the recommendations that have already been implemented as well as the ones that have not been. And I also hope to hear from as many of our women and men in uniform as possible. So uh, that's uh, the early statement, of course, from uh, Minister, Defence Minister Anon. Uh, the tax here is overwhelming, quite frankly, especially in light of the handling or some would suggest mishandling of, uh, of this file over the last number of years by the former defense minister. So what is happening going forward and, and where do you begin in a situation like this? Pleased to welcome to the program uh, Stephanie Schwinnard, who is an associate professor of political science at Royal Military College. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Where do we begin in a situation, and more importantly, where does Minister Anand begin on this? There's, a, As she mentioned in the clip we just played there, there is a body of information of people who have studied this inside out and backwards for the last little while. I think one of the frustrations we've had is, is the lack of action on some of those recommendations and, and on some of the what many people consider to be facts here. Uh, this is a new minister. She said she's bound and determined she's going to do something about it. How, how does she start this, and how does she get the ball rolling? Well, as uh, she said, and as you just highlighted in that clip, she's very well aware that this is not something that's new to the Canadian Armed Forces. And we can, uh, of course, uh, say that uh, Louise Arbour is, is working on this. There's going to be a new report coming. But in the meanwhile, there's already been a report on this by another former Supreme Court uh, justice, uh, Justice uh, Leroux Dubé, uh, who's been uh, essentially gathering dust for the past few years, on which very few of her recommendations have been acted on. And so, uh, Madame Anan already has, you know, a, a pathway for action. Now, one of the things that I think will be important for her, uh, is that, you know, uh, in the past several years in Canada, we have not had a Minister of National Defense that came, uh, specifically from the civilian world. We've had a number of former, uh, DNT ministers who were previous, uh, members of the military themselves, uh, former CAF members. And so it's going to be important for her to build some trusting relationships with her team uh, before she gets to work. Because when we're talking about cultural change, we're really talking about a team effort here. It's, she can't be the only one spearheading uh, this, uh, this objective. That's kind of a double-edged sword, though, isn't it, Professor, when you look at something like this? Uh, you know, it, as you say, past defense ministers have had military backgrounds in some way, shape, or form which probably would increase the comfort level from people in the military to say, well, at least so-and-so understands what we're doing, and et cetera. How readily are they going to accept a minister, a civilian minister, that doesn't have that military background? We should, by the way, mention that uh, uh, Minister Anand is a lawyer, uh, a constitutional lawyer, and has a, a solid background in that. So, But from that standpoint, which I'm, I'm sure is going to hold her in good stead here, 
But but is she going to have an uphill battle trying to establish that credibility, uh, especially in the ranks of the Canadian military? I think it would be an uphill battle for anyone who takes up that position right now. Good point. Uh, con- considering uh, where it's been left off, to be quite honest, I think the double-edged sword is is a uh, is a good way to put it because on on one end it's going to be a learning curve, and I am confident that uh, Madame Anand can can face this challenge. Uh, she doesn't only have a background in law, but she also has a background in governance, and so culture change within an institution is definitely within the realm of things that she understands and and has worked on in the past. Uh, Her experience in procurement, I think, will be uh, pretty helpful as well to gather the trust of the troops because procurement in the military, uh, as we've known, has been kind of a a dumpster fire for a number of years. And so if she can get the dial moving on this, uh, she will uh, have, a, I think, an easier time moving the dial on cultural change. Um, now, the uh, the fact that she doesn't have military background can also be seen as an asset, however, because uh, not being part of the so-called boys club uh, is, I think, something that, that may be important in order to see how things could be done differently. And we've seen in the past that having someone who's from uh, the, the cast, someone who's a veteran, um, yes, they bring in a prior knowledge of the institution, but that also comes with baggage. And we saw that with minister, former ministers, uh, Minister Sajjan's uh, prior relationship with former CDS John Vance, for example. And so she doesn't come with those strings attached to certain members of the hierarchy, such as uh, former ministers. The fact that she's uh, a woman, uh, as we said, only the second woman to uh, to hold this portfolio, uh, Kim Campbell being the last one a number of years ago. As a matter of fact, the first woman of color to ever hold this portfolio. Uh, how does that balance against what we've seen with the reports that have come out so far, Professor? I, I think there's an argument to be made based on some of the information and, and some of the conclusions drawn from previous reports uh, that one of the elements that needs to be dealt with is a certain sense of misogyny within the upper ranks of the Canadian military uh, and maybe permeating all the way down. We don't know yet exactly how deep that goes. Uh, is that going to be a factor in, in, in Minister Anand's dealing with the, the upper, the top brass especially? Yeah, this is the classical textbook uh, textbook example of what we call a glass cliff, right? Uh, putting a woman uh, in a position at a moment of crisis uh, and uh, possibly setting her up for failure. Uh, we've seen this with Theresa May, for example, with uh, with Brexit in the UK. Um, you know, already yesterday, I've seen a, a lot of uh, comments uh, flowing on the on, on the good old social media about. The fact that, you know, she's not qualified because uh, the, the Canadian soldiers, they play with firearms, not with dolls and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, personally, I don't have a whole lot of time for that. Uh, I think um, it, is, uh, it, it is sending a signal from above that uh, the, the prime minister's office wants to see uh, some, some serious change within this institution. Uh, and Miss Anand, yes, is a woman, so maybe she'll be tackling these issues with a different framework in mind. But also, I also think she was someone who was generally seen, sex notwithstanding, as one of the most competent uh, in the, the the roster that the prime minister could choose from. So, so, so we'll see, you know, how much more resistance she faces from within the institution because she's a woman. I'd like to think uh, that uh, we are uh, beyond those kinds of things uh, as Canadians, but as we know, you know, there there is some internal resistance, there is some internal misogyny in the armed forces, as there is in the wider Canadian society. 
So uh, mm-hmm. she's got she's definitely got a lot of work to do. Your point's well taken, though. There's got to be some support here from, from her boss, in other words, the prime minister. And your your point about setting up for failure, I think, is 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 very germane to this conversation. Uh, our listeners may remember back in 2015 when uh, the prime minister was first elected to, to government, his first cabinet, uh, Minister Monsef was uh, was singled out to say, OK, you're in charge of this electoral reform that I promised we were going to have. Uh, but it was pretty obvious, in hindsight especially, uh, that the government really didn't have their heart into that. They said they were going to do it, so they studied it, and it was a total failure. And and, and Minister Monsef, newly admitted Minister Monsef, really, she took the fall for that. Uh, I'm, I'm getting the sense, though, Professor, that there's a different scenario here, that uh, I think they're getting to the point in Ottawa now, enough is enough, and they've got to find some resolution to what's going on in the military. Uh, do you get that sense as well, that the Prime Minister is going to say, look, at, here's here are your marching orders, just get this done? Yeah, I think the proof is going to be in the in the mandate letter uh, that yeah. uh, that uh, Miss Anand will get in uh, in a few days, a few weeks, and which will be made public. Uh, like all of the other mandate letters, this is something that I appreciate from this government, uh, so that we know exactly what the marching orders are. And uh, I am very much hoping that this will be the top priority to see to this to this cultural change. Uh, and that she's uh, not only, you know, given the power of the prime minister's office uh, behind her in order to to uh, to, to act on uh, on this mandate, uh, but also that that she is well surrounded from within national defense in order to achieve this. Uh, again, this can't uh, be something that a single minister uh, can achieve on her own. And, and, you know, I don't think it's a one mandate uh kind of uh, kind of change. Uh, we're talking about deep uh, intergenerational issues uh, that that uh, that the, the CAF is dealing with right now. It's not it's going to take more than a couple of years to solve it. As, as one observer pointed out the other day, uh, this is especially with what we've heard about the past reports I've read this. What's going on right now is just not a sexual misconduct crisis. It's, it's an abuse of power crisis. Uh, do you think the minister understands the gravity of that? And that that seems to me uh, to be something that she could act on sooner than later, uh, th- those who are abusing the power of the position in which they are currently holding. Yeah, no, I, I think I think she does get uh, the full grasp of the issue. I think, uh, you know, someone like uh, Ms. Anan, uh, when she was offered this position by the prime minister, I'm, I'm, I'm sure she knew what she was uh, walking into and, and considered uh, the uh, the breadth of the challenge in front of her, so to speak. Uh, so it, it's going to be interesting, for for example, to see uh, where uh, where she goes with the uh, the appointment of the chief of defense staff. We have General Wayne Eyre, who's been acting CDF since March now, and uh, I know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of hopes uh, from inside the institution that you know uh, we get uh, a signal of stability, whether it's uh, finally regularizing uh, General Eyre in his possession or appointing someone new, but putting someone in there who's going to be there for the next few years and who will be able to uh, stabilize the course uh, for, for the institution, so to speak. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. There are two names that come to mind here, I'm, I'm, I'm Professor, when we're talking about, I, I guess, maybe making a statement uh, on behalf of the minister. Uh, one is, is General Eyre. Uh, you know, do, do you say, okay, this is your job? Uh, and run the risk, by the way, if some observers saying, well, here it is, same old, same old. They're just you know, appointing the same people as we usually do. Uh, the other, of course, is uh, one of the people that was in the spotlight for the longest time, of course, uh, and that, of course, being Admiral McDonald, uh, who was not charged officially with any of the allegations against him. He seems to think that uh, as a result of that, he's been vindicated and he wants his job back. Uh, that's in limbo right now. Uh, 
does she have to make a firm statement on that right off the bat to, to I guess, for two reasons, to suggest and, and to indicate that she's in charge here and also to add, you mentioned, add some clarity to this and say this is going to be the chain of command? Because there are, as you know, a lot of people that are saying, look, sweep the house clean right now. That's the only way you're going to get this thing solved. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I'd rather not, uh, you know, uh, suppose that I, that I know uh, which course um, uh, Ms. Anand will take on, on the appointment of the CDS, but, uh, but I am hoping that uh, she, uh, she makes it clear sooner than later who, uh, who is uh, going to be the CDS. Uh, and not just not just in an acting fashion, someone who has you know the the full the full authority of the position in order to steer the ship. And, and with that in mind, uh, do you start at the top and work your way down? As somebody that I, I mean, there's got to be somebody here who, I guess, gives some indication that they're going to work with the ministry here because there's there's a lot of of, of work to be doing here uh, to be done. Yeah, I think it, it, uh, it's at all levels. Um, you know, the, obviously the, the, the top of the chain of command uh, has been, uh, you know, the, the one that's been most in the spotlight in the past few weeks, in the past few months. Uh, but uh, those guys give, uh, give cues to, uh, to, to uh, the people that are underneath them. And so while there's definitely work to be done at the top, uh, there's also there's also some some work and reassurance to be done uh, at the bottom of the chain of command. And I'm, you know, speaking as a professor at Royal Military College, mm-hmm. um, I've been having lots of discussions about this with my students, uh, you know, uh, young 18 to, to 20, 22, 23 year olds who are who are witnessing what's going on within their institution and are looking for guidance. They want to know exactly uh, you know, um, what they understood out of the career that they were, they're walking into. Have they been lied to this entire time? Uh, the, the standard of conduct that they understood was theirs. Uh, how is that going to be achieved? And uh, the people that are above them, and, that, uh, and, and as well as the soldiers that will be subordinate to them when they graduate, uh, what is going to be the expectation? You know, uh, what is going to be uh, the, uh, the, the framework and, and the benchmark for uh, what is expected in the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, let me ask you about that, especially with your experience in the classroom with the students, as you say, the, the military leaders of tomorrow. Uh, yesterday, Mr. Anand said that, uh, that you know, one of her main priorities here is going to uh, make sure that military members feel safe and protected and have access to supports. Uh, there's an argument to be made that that was not the case and is not the case even as we speak today. Uh, do your students, the leaders of tomorrow in the military, feel uh concerned about that? Are they expressing concern about this, the current environment? And, and, you know, they're going to be entering into this as right now. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody wants to go into there feeling that they could be a potential victim to this, male and female, but essentially a lot of them, of course, are female victims uh, that have come forward and, and wondering, boy, what am I getting myself into? Is there some trepidation there? Um, there, uh, there's definitely a sense of, you know, some of their heroes having been torn down and, and things not having been what they expected. Uh, our students walk into uh, the Canadian Armed Forces as, as officer cadets, uh, I think with a full understanding uh, that they will be held to a certain standard of conduct. Um, and they also expect that the people that they're taking their cues from, to, from the, the, higher, uh, the hierarchy uh, are people who uh, have had the same expectations put upon them in their entire career. And now what we're seeing uh, in the news in the past few weeks and the past few months is that, uh, you know, there's been exceptions being made that are now coming 
into full light, and that should have never been made. Uh, there's been there's been a, a culture of of uh, hiding and accepting behaviors uh, that were far from acceptable, far from uh, from from meeting that standard of conduct, and so uh, they. Um, there's a feeling of, I would say, uh, worry and disenchantment, but also a full understanding that uh, it will also be upon them to uh, to hold the institution up to that standard, what their expectations uh, were when they walked into it. So, so I, I think it 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 goes both ways, right? They 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 are disenchanted, but they also see the challenge and. Um, you know, I'm I'm very proud of the way that my students are are handling this right now, and and the way that they're understanding what is going on, and how they see their future in this institution, and they want to change this uh, for the future. And that's not just my female students; my my male students are very proactive in those discussions as well. That's kind of the glass half full approach, which is, I think, a, a great attitude to heaven here. I mean, I can understand some concern about what they've heard about what's gone on here, especially through the chain of command. Uh, but they could be looking at themselves and saying, OK, this we could be the agents of change to try to fix some of this stuff. An attitude like that, I think, would be very positive heading in. Yeah, and I'm I'm hoping that's you know the way they leave RMC when they walk into uh, their careers at, as second lieutenants. Uh, if they leave with that attitude and with the tools to, uh, to 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 maintain that standard of conduct and to make this institution a better one uh, for this generation and the following one, I think that's the best we can hope for, quite frankly. Well, uh, to use your your reference of uh, the previous portfolio that Minister Renan held as a procurement minister, we got to remember uh, in January, February of this year, she was under a great deal of stress. People saying, where are the vaccines? What's going on here? These people don't know what they're doing. Uh, she seemed unflappable uh, flappable in this situation and got the job done. So I know that that's hopefully the kind of attitude she's going to take into this as well. And we'll, we'll be watching carefully. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, uh, Professor. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Have a great one. Take care. That's uh, Professor Stephanie Schwinnard, uh, political science professor at Royal Military College, with the uh, huge challenges ahead of uh, now Defense Minister Anita Anand. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about another very contentious Ontario government uh, policy and, and set of policies uh, dealing with long-term care facilities. And, and we've talked at length about a number of the concerns here. And, and like so many other things, of course, we understand that uh, COVID-19 really exacerbated some existing problems in long-term care facilities. And uh, Brad Phillips, Rod Phillips, rather, who is the, the Minister of uh, Long-Term Care, uh, has been on this program and saying he was going to do something about it. Well, a couple of announcements over the last 24 hours uh, that we're going to get to in a couple of seconds. Uh, one of them uh, has to do with hiring more staff. Ontario Long-Term Care Minister Phillips says the government plans to hire 193 staff, creating a ratio of one inspector. These are inspectors now. Uh, for these facilities, one inspector for every two long-term care homes. Here's the minister. People need to trust that our most vulnerable will be safe and enjoy the quality of life they deserve in long-term care homes in Ontario. And inspections play a critical role in holding homes accountable and keeping residents safe. Uh, I want to talk about that, but also an announcement that uh, was uh, released to us just earlier this morning, as a matter of fact. And to do uh, that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is the co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards and a professor at Ontario Tech University. Uh, pleasure to have you, Doctor, as always. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, good morning, friend. It's always great talking to you. 
I want to, Vivian, I want to get to the this thing about the, the inspectors in a second, but I also want to talk about this press release we got actually just uh, as we started the program today, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I'm sure you've seen. The Ontario government is investing up to $100 million to add an additional 2,000 nurses to long-term care by 2425. Uh, mm-hmm. The government's going to do this by supporting training of thousands of personal support workers. Uh, this is what the minister is speaking of, and actually just uh, finished his, his comments at uh, Queen's Park. Forgive my cynicism here, but is this not just a reannouncement of something they talked about last year? I mean, 2,000 nurses for over the next four years. I mean, come on, this you know, it's it's um, it's not enough, obviously. And again, it's it's going down this this wrong path, right? So we need like estimates show that we need about 30,000 new staffers, and we already know that the staffing mix is problematic. Where it used to be the case that it was predominantly nurses that would work in these homes, and now it's predominantly PSWs, and now they've de-skilled that even further to resident care aides under Minister Fullerton. Um, so it's, you know what I mean? Like 2,000 is a drop in the bucket. We need thousands, if not tens of thousands of nurses to really address the, the problematic staffing mix in these homes. So it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, you know, dollar, what is a dollar short, day late, right? <laughs> the saying goes. Um, and, and the timeline is unacceptable. But again, I'm never going to complain when you're giving more money to long-term care because we got to take whatever we can get. But band-aids, band-aids. And, and this is the concern I've got about this. I mean, when I say a re-announcement, they talked about this last year, uh, that they were going to encourage people to go to these programs and they were going to cover the tuition costs. And that's, it's yeah. laudable that they're doing that. But the concern that I had, and you and I talked about it the day he made that announcement, was what is going to inspire anybody to want to go into this profession <laughs> yeah. right now? The pay what stinks. The working either. conditions stink. Yeah. Uh, and anybody who's going to take this program, as you mentioned, is probably going to go in and work in one of these facilities for about six or eight months and said, I'm out of here. I can't stand 100%, 100%. this. 100%. Where, where is, is the incentive? Where is the, you yeah. know, there's, there's nothing here about standardizing no. pay. There's nothing here about nope. a, a living wage for these people. Nope. No, and this is it, right? It's all bait and switch. It's, it's a lot of window dressing. But when people need to, what they need to know is you got to look further here. The, the point is, is that we have a problem with retention. The biggest problem is this revolving door, which is, you know, all the more worse in for-profit homes because we know they hire less workers, which means more burnout. They pay their workers less. It's a whole, you know, ad finitum ad nauseum of issues with the for-profit sector. Um, so we, we haven't heard anything about, you know, dealing with the for-profit cancer in this sector. And frankly, we heard yesterday that he's actually has close to 10,000 for-profit beds under development right now. So <laughs> that was his okaying of these new for-profit bed contracts. So, you know, I've said we're just literally going down the path of repeating the horrors that we saw before. That aside, he's done nothing to address retention, and this is the biggest thing, right? So he's sitting here talking about regulations for hiring more inspectors, and then tomorrow we're going to hear about some, you know, new changes to the Long-Term Care Homes Act. But where are the regulations? And he has the power to do this, to mandate a certain level of pay for all the workers in the home to mandate, you know, uh, the majority full-time permanent positions for these workers. So they don't have to take jobs, part-time jobs and number different facilities, which we know led to increases in the disease spreading around the facilities. And that happens too with yearly rates of seasonal flu. So it's just bad from an infection prevention and control perspective, in addition to being terrible for the workers to have to work two to three part-time jobs to make ends meet. So these are the things we need in addition to the implementing the care standard, the four-hour care standard right now. And by doing that, it would force the homes to have to hire enough staff on hand. And we have the estimates we need a, you know, to effectively double the amount of caregiving hours that are currently in place to get to that level. So you could regulate these things right now. It should have been regulated you know, yesterday. 
But we're not doing that. Why aren't they doing that? They're putting Band-Aids on that look good to people on the outside who don't know the systemic issues that are at play. But when you look at what's actually happening and the problems that exist in this sector, you realize that this is effectively window dressing ahead of potentially the election. Because also keep in mind that all of these things will come into effect in years down the road. Not right now. Not right now. But after, you know, so, so wait for us, you know, to get through the next election and then you'll see these things come through. This is a lot of the cynicism I'm hearing from families right now, understandably so. Well, and especially if you have somebody, a loved one, in one of these facilities right now, and the minister says, look, at, we're going to increase uh, the number of staff there uh, in four years. Uh, that's cold comfort to these people. They're not, probably yeah, not going to be there in four years. No, they uh, won't. You know, so what about the here and now? Yeah, there is nothing. There is nothing for the here and now. And this is what really frustrates everyone that has anything to do with long-term care. I mean, we saw what happened. The average lifespan of a resident upon admission is between 12 months to 16 months. So a year to year and a half. They, they have already... <laughs> missed all of any potential benefits and they're going to miss the potential benefits so we're not helping anyone in these facilities right now who are still struggling in understaffed homes that are under-resourced i mean okay great for the future residents but like what are we doing right now what are we doing and then you know yesterday on top of it i don't know if you missed this because yesterday was just a flurry of news i'm still reeling from there was the about face that the military did did you catch that so we heard reports. That's on my list to talk to you about oh, here. Oh, yeah. And yeah. for those who missed that story, you may remember that the military report said a number of people in these facilities died of dehydration and malnutrition uh, and lack of care. Uh, now the military has come out and said, nah, they didn't really. And the reason why is because they said there was no documentation. Well, you know why? Because the people weren't, that were not looking after them were the ones that were signing the documents. Well, here's the, the kicker. This this new admission, this new about face came only after Premier Ford's government did a review as to these allegations. And these allegations were specific to two homes, Downsview Long-Term Care and Hawthorne Place, where the allegations came out in the final notes of the commission, the Long-Term Care Commission, that up to 26 residents died from dehydration at those homes alone upon arrival. And then apparently... Suddenly, after this review, they're trying to say that they can't definitively comment on what caused these residents to die because they didn't conduct forensic investigations or autopsies. You want to know the kicker? I've spoken to families at these homes, and I've actually helped them get their stories out on the media. They have told me, and this is public record, that they requested an autopsy because they had a feeling something was going on here, and they never got it. And I hear from families across Ontario that were denied autopsies. They told either told their loved ones were sent directly to crematoriums or furthermore, death certificates sent out were changed by the chief coroner. Why did we never have, you know, how about you ask the question there? Why were they denying these families autopsies when they weren't going out of their way to ask for them? Does that not seem like an admission of guilt in and of itself? This, I mean, come on. It's just mind-blowing to me and where's the where's the chief coroner what is dirt hire doing i'm sorry but other other provinces are doing coroner's inquests they're actually looking into what happened in long-term care we have silence silence if anything it looks like and this is what families say all the time that this government did whatever they could that so the evidence wasn't gathered wasn't collected properly so that these families could get the justice they want and it would sound like when you deny families autopsies that are requesting autopsies, what does that look like to you? I pray these families get lawyers because what has happened has been horrifying. So give me a break. You're going to say that you suddenly care about the rights and protecting these residents. 
when when literally the day before you, you have you debunk the military, the people on the front lines who are there and you then have I don't know who had this, you know, about face or, or why this came out. But you're not asking the actual questions that should be asked. Like, why did they do autopsies? Why? What are you trying to hide? I mean, and, and basically, it's, it's reverse onus here. They're basically saying prove that they did die of dehydration, uh, as opposed yeah. to looking at, at the facts here. I mean, the, the, yeah. the gentleman in charge, the operations manager in charge of the military uh, domestic operations, uh, says there's no official report uh, that actually supports this. Uh, he says, likely this was pulled from an unofficial, unsupported, and emotionally charged witness statement. How, <laughs> how, how insulting is that? It's so insulting. You are literally denigrating not only your own, you know, frontline uh, military personnel, because these were for military personnel who made these comments. So now you're, you're effectively saying you had a bunch of heretic frontline military workers who, who apparently were just emotional. So you're pulling that gendered language on, presumably, I mean, I'm assuming the majority that were deployed were men. But, hey, I don't know the stats there, but we don't stats in generally military uh, composition. But, I mean, really, they're emotional. Maybe they're emotional because what they saw will live with them and traumatize them for probably the rest of their life. Like every single person who was actually in these facilities during this time. It's wildly insulting. It's such a slap in the face to not only those, you know, th- those frontline military personnel that were deployed but everyone else who was in those homes that, that saw what happened and that were have been whistleblowing right we have evidence from families from staff i mean it's not just the military who whistleblows so something is really wrong here and when i saw that i mean and you know you read the room meaning twitter room and people were immediately like well, okay something seems fishy here something seems off right and, and and I've spoken to those families again who had the loved ones in those facilities, and they were livid. They were livid. They think it's a cover-up. Well, they, they say the absence of death investigations and autopsies uh, means that there's no way to substantiate this. But Because nobody signed off on this and said, and nobody on the staff, I mean, signed off on this and said this was dehydration or malnutrition. Well, doctor, if they do that, that's an admission of substandard care. And they understand that if they yeah, do absolutely. that, there's going to be an investigation. Uh, they might lose their jobs. There could be lawsuits. Of course, absolutely. they're not going to sign off on that. Absolutely. Of course. And there, and this has been a pattern of hiding what happens in a lot of these facilities. And it's happened before the pandemic. I have stories and stories from long-term care families who have told me cases of horrifying negligence, preventable injury, that, that was never reported to the ministry. And that only after, you know, the families either got lawyers or they got ministry inspectors in there, did then it come out that the people that ran these homes were trying to keep these things quiet, right? Obviously. So this has been happening for quite some time. So that's another reason why I'm like, give me a break. You're hiring more inspectors, but are they actually going to lay charges? Because that's something that also came up yesterday that, you know, Minister Phillips said himself, well, you know, the inspectors have the ability to lay charges under the Provincial Act, like we saw yesterday with the Ministry of Labor that went after that one home, Kensington Care. Um, and by the way, that, that Kensington Care case scenario happened literally at hundreds of homes across the province. So we only saw charges at one home yesterday, and it wasn't even by the Ministry of Long-Term Care. So that's all you need to know about how, you know, stringent the Ministry of Long-Term Care actually goes after these bad actors, when it wasn't even them. To date, they have not gone after one of these homes and laid any charges. The Ministry of Labor, and that only happened because the ONA, the Ontario Nurses Association, the union representing those workers, you know, viciously went after to get these charges because one of their members died. And rightly so. And, and, and unfortunately, the other 13, you know, staffers that died in long-term care homes, what about the justice there? The, the, the up to 4,000 residents that died of COVID during that time period, where's, where are the charges for them? 
give me a break. So you're going to hire some more inspectors? Are they actually going to lay charges? Are they actually going to do anything other than protecting the industry? Because that's what's happening here. Let's be very real. This, this whole industry is captured. The, the, the benefits and the whims of the shareholders and the CEOs are what the, the pol- they influence the policies. And we've had these talks with people that are both in the, the lobbies themselves, in addition to, you know, pretty much everyone on the in knows this. Um, you look at the policies that came out during COVID, and most of them were things that were being pushed by the for-profit lobby, by the big for-profit chains. And it's just really upsetting to see how the residents and the workers have really been thrown under the bus during this pandemic. And, and there's been nobody to really defend them other than their unions and, and you know, lawyers to civil, civil litigation. But where's the government? The government stepped up and created a bill to defend and protect and remove liability from these operators during COVID instead of actually going after them for their negligence. Like, as you say, the spin here is, well, it's, 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 it's embarrassing, actually, that, that this is what the government's doing and they're saying this is part of their solution. Uh, always great to have you on the program to actually sift through the BS here and, and, and try to give a, a better understanding of exactly what's going on, Doctor. Thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well, and I know we'll talk again soon. You too. My pleasure, friend. Take care. Dr. Vivian Stavitopoulos, of course, with her concerns about some of the government policies. And, and this is what it really comes down to. And, you know, you can put big dollar numbers into this like they have here, and that's impressive. But if you have somebody in one of these facilities and you've seen the level of care and the concerns that people have, and you're saying, well, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do about malnutrition? What are you going to do about level of care? Uh, what are you going to do about retaining people? Uh, because they, the working conditions are so abhorrent for so many of them. Those are the things that need to be addressed. And it's going to mean some tough decisions. And it's going to have to, you have to play hardball with some of these owners. And I don't think this government's got this, the stomach for that, for whatever reason. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.